Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, when on April 9th, 1865, Ulysses S. Grant received the surrender of Robert A. Lee, one of the staff officers who accompanied him to Wilmer McLean's front parlor was Eli S. Parker. Parker was a lieutenant colonel in the Union Army, an engineer, and a friend of Grant's from Galena, Illinois. But he was also a member of the Wolf Clan of the Seneca, one of the six nations of the Iroquois, or Haudenosaunee. And not only was he a member, but he was indeed the sachem of the Six Nations. So it was that a man who was not actually a citizen of the United States drafted the official copy of the Terms of Surrender, which Grant and Lee signed. Parker was one in a lineage of people who shaped the modern conception of the Six Nations. In this endeavor, he was preceded by his uncle, Red Jacket, and succeeded by his friend and adopted Seneca tribe member, Harriet Converse, and his nephew, Arthur Parker. All of them shaped a history of what Arthur Parker, in a ten-volume unpublished work, called The Amazing Iroquois. John C. Winters describes their story in his new book, The Amazing Iroquois and the Invention of the Empire State. John Winters is an assistant professor of history at the University of Southern Mississippi. This is his first book. John C. Winters, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So throughout the book, you play around with this idea of Iroquois exceptionalism. If my old professor David Hollinger was on the podcast, he would immediately protest that American exceptionalism is wrongly used. It was invented by Stalin or the head of the Communist Party or something like that, but we won't get into that. You're enjoying playing around with Iroquois versus American exceptionalism. But defining our terms, what is Iroquois exceptionalism? I trust that it's not the Iroquois lacked a feudal class so that therefore their approach to post-capitalism or socialism is different. (laughs) No, no, not quite. But this notion of Iroquois exceptionalism is, of course, at the heart of the book, but it's an invented category, though, similarly. So it is really capturing the idea that the Iroquois have this unique place in American history. If you're walking down the street in New York City or you're moving through New York State and you ask people, what do you know of the Iroquois or have you heard of the Iroquois? The responses that often spring to mind are these exceptional things like the Skywalkers, right? The Iroquoian steel workers, Mm -hmm. most of them Mohawks who are building the Empire State Building and basically New York City's skyline, not only using Iroquoian muscle, but also Iroquoian steel. Some of them who have more like anthropological interests and maybe political theoretical interests are really interested in this idea that the Iroquois, in effect, invented modern American women's rights. Because as a matrilineal society, the Iroquois had this or granted women this extraordinary and exceptional power. So during the mid-19th through the early 20th century, we see lots of these suffrage reformers turn to the Iroquois to say, if we, America, the United States, this progressive white nation, 
can't even do the same thing that these quote-unquote savage Indian, our quote-unquote savage Indian neighbors are doing in granting women equal representation and power and influence, or at least a say in how society is run. Something is terribly wrong. For people who think politically, and historians in particular, but this one has a lot of resonance and is still talked about in within sort of contemporary modern day Iroquoian circles, is this idea of the Iroquois influence thesis, which is the suggestion that the Iroquois, not only because of the structure of their government, because it was a confederacy, and because it had aspects that shaped the way that the United States devised its own political system, everything from its legislative branch to its executive to even its judiciary, right? The Iroquois are a foundational piece of how the Americans conceived of their own government in the revolutionary period, in the buildup to the early republic, but that the Iroquois, because of all these rights that were granted to their citizens, because it was a political system that was based on uniformity and unanimity, that it had actually shaped the way Americans conceived of democracy and political participation itself, right? So this memory of the Iroquois is, in a lot of ways, exceptional. And that exceptionality also trickles down from there. New Yorkers, you know, it's a sense that New York City, and in a lot of cases, New York State, is exceptional and has an exceptional history. And this was tracked all the way from the creation of the Erie Canal, which really was the thing that put New York State on the map and started to very quickly outpace the size and the scope and the scale, both in economic power and demographics, of Virginia and move that locus of American moved American finance power. from Philadelphia to New York. And the Philadelphia Erie Canal to New York creates New York City. Without it, the agricultural hinterland expands from a very small sliver of territory in the Hudson Valley to everything that flows into the Great Lakes, which is right. ex extraordinary. Yeah, it it is makes remarkable. New York City, also that perfect harbor has a reason to exist. Yes, the Dutch had it right. And the Dutch yeah. chose that place very carefully and with great precision, right? But it's, not it's, an the, Erie accident. It, but it's the Erie Canal that makes it. You can see all the, yeah. I forget who it is in one of his, some business history traces the movement of all these, basically the Wall Street moves, quote unquote Wall Street moves from Philadelphia, capital moves from Philadelphia to New York in the 1840s, at a, from the 1820s to the 1840s. And that's, it's the Erie Canal what does it. I was in the Illinois, a place, Starved Rock State Park, speaking of Iroquois exceptionalism. It's the site of what was, confusingly enough, Fort St. Louis, a French outpost, trading post. And Starved Rock takes its name from when a bunch of the local tribes were besieged, quote-unquote, on top of this kind of natural mesa in the midst of the Illinois prairie by a war party of Seneca. And this is during the Beaver Wars. And it's really stunning to think of, here's this place, 50 miles west of Chicago. And yet the Iroquois are exceptional as they wage their war of imperial control. They're also exceptional in their desire to seek out and, and to subsume territorial control of other tribes throughout Northeast, Northeastern United States broadly understood. So yes. we should probably explain some of that back history before we get to our, the first protagonist, Red Jacket because he is drawing upon that history is very alive to him, as well as his realization 
that the future will not be like that. That the, and his realization where others in perhaps the Six Nations don't, that they have a circumscribed future. He's trying to figure out how to live. So let's do basically the earliest accounts that everyone's involved. Arthur Parker recorded these accounts and then try to run forward to the American Revolution of Red Jacket. Sure, yeah. And that is that focus, that emphasis, the, yeah, that, that focus and emphasis on empire is really where the Iroquois and the history of the Iroquois to historians, but also to contemporaries of the people in this book, this was the focus of a lot of this attention because the Iroquois, again, another facet of this exceptionality, but the Iroquois were politically and geographically expansive in a way that was powerful and that was potent. The British and the French, as they were colonizing lands along the St. Lawrence River and, of course, within what is now New York State today, were daily coming up against the political realities of the Iroquois and not only their military capacity within and around the Great Lakes and their ability to send war parties and sorties to these places that are far flung from where we would imagine that indigenous peoples could actually, how far they could actually travel. But just their political capacity also seemed to scared some people, really made people nervous of far they could actually extend their influence. We have records of the Washington administration of British colonial officials going as far back as Cadwallader Calden in, in the late 17th century who's writing this first kind of British or English imperial report about what the state of colonial expansion and what the state of this new sort of relationship that in order for the British Empire to expand into North America, we need to confront, we need to come to terms with, and ultimately we need to ally with these Iroquois because they are so expansive, not only in New York and around the Great Lakes, which is the center of this fur trade and one of the most important sort of economic drivers of this colonial effort. But we know that they seem to be able to mobilize people as far south as the Carolinas, right? They, there's this extraordinary reach that is almost half a continent in scale. It's really remarkable. Lots of this, however, as Francis Jennings famously put it in the, um, the ambiguous Iroquois empire, right? One of the classics, and he really gets at this question of some of that is real. Some of that is their actual military capacity and their ability to leverage diplomacy and leverage alliances and their capacity to, despite the fact that there are six different nations that are part of this Iroquoian confederacy, and despite the fact that they all speak different languages from one another, there is no war, there is no conflict between them by design. That allows them to essentially radiate outward this conflict, radiate outward this violence, and to project power, regional power, in this way that frightened these colonial officials. They're very, so, I've always thought that, here's a strange comparative history example, they always remind me of the Swiss in almost precisely the same time period. But the Swiss got screwed up by the Reformation. There are Catholics and Protestants fighting amongst themselves. But otherwise, they were radiating out from the Alps, like the Iroquois radiate out from, radiate from Western New York, messing around with everyone around them, 
putting their finger in every pie, bringing back right. wealth and captives. Same. Yes. Yeah. And part of the morning wards system was to, yes, you would go, of course, to war against your neighbors, but that was to right a wrong. That was to correct sometimes a form of punishment. It was to replenish your own sort of demographics, right? And to literally replace people with war captives, adopt people into your kinship networks, and thus rebuild the empire if something happened and people were indeed lost. But it's also a tenant of that kind of outward expansion is also tenant of the great tree of peace, right? Sort of the foundation of this Iroquoian political network is that they simply, or they knew and they assumed and thus tried to execute on this idea that the world would be more peaceful, the world would be safer, and there would be no need for war if everybody was part of the empire. So in these early stages, when Red Jacket, you know, this first person in the book who really comes of age during the American Revolution, when he's thinking about Iroquois politics and he's thinking about diplomacy, he's not conceiving of the Iroquois as being on the back foot by, by any stretch, perhaps militarily and on the battlefield, sure. But his goal here is really to subsume the United States and before that their British and the French into this web of political influence to bring everyone, regardless of their background, that that was the whole point of the Great Tree of Peace, right? Regardless of your background, your language, whatever it was, under this political umbrella. We're thinking about this Iroquoian empire, and that's why I'm saying it's really dominating the scholarly literature right now, and often what we think about and know about the Iroquois, because it's, it touches many facets of their history. Their but it's also world. ambiguous because the Iroquois, this is very key to the Virginia experience of the Ohio Valley in the early 1750s, the Iroquois liked to make claims that weren't necessarily agreed to by anyone else. So they liked to have a, they liked to claim they had a finger in the pie, even when they hadn't yet extended their hand. Yes. And this is, reflects that notion of lots of these indigenous nations, right? And this narrative is actually not unique to the Iroquois, right? That these indigenous nations, regardless of where they were when they encountered these European colonial powers, later American colonial powers, they were very good at deflecting attention almost away from themselves. Dan Richter, in Facing East from Indian Country, which is really one of the formative books for me, talks about this. And he's talking about these stories of from Spanish conquistadors who were in the Southeast through French and English colonization well into the 18th century that these indigenous nations are, again, deflecting sort of attention and they're trying to remove the direct threat of French, of British in whatever way that means. For the Iroquois, this does change a little bit, but the principle is there. But rather than being middlemen, they are relying on this notion and this fear of British and French colonial officials that the Iroquois are indeed that powerful. So they're claiming, in some cases, ownership, famously over the Delaware, for example, right, in, in the middle of the 18th century, and that claiming that we, the Iroquois, had made women of the Delaware, therefore they are this subordinate nation, the subordinate authority to Iroquois in order so that they can better leverage their negotiations with British and then eventually the United States in Pennsylvania and in the region. Delaware, of course, had nothing to do with this. They never claimed to be subordinated to the Iroquois whatsoever, and the Iroquois, for them, never actually claimed to have any ownership over the Delaware. 
So yes, there are multiple examples where this capacity to convince right the world that they were this empire and they were this imperial power was widespread. So all these things go pear-shaped in the American Revolution, even if they might not realize it yet. I guess one of the important facts in American history is that only the Oneida decided to to ally themselves with the United States. But uh, if a, two or three more nations of the six nations had done that, that might things might have been different. Who know, probably not, but who knows? Yeah, but it's the important. Oneida and and significant members of the Tuscarora. The Tuscarora, as well. yes, exactly. Yeah, and of course that calls in the question. This is the first fissure too in the, under the great the Confederacy of the Confederation of the Six Nations, that one and a half of the nations has departed from the great tree of peace, that the, 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 the great longhouse is now divided against itself. This is, yes. there's a, is that too much to say there's a little bit of a, that there's a civil war or is there a feeling of fissure within the Six Nations in addition to fissure. all the other external threats? Yes, fissure, yes, most most definitely. And even uh, even internally within those nations that decided to ally with sure. British, which in this case, the Seneca did, we have competing claims to what the best future of the Iroquois will be moving forward. Red Jacket is outstanding in his, in his desire for peace during the war. He recognizes that this is a civil war amongst the Americans and their British brothers. Mm -hmm. He recognizes all of these things, but he sees not a path forward in war. He sees a path forward in peace. He eventually has to be overruled by Joseph Brandt and Corn Planter and people who are able to mobilize most public opinions within the Seneca Nation. And Red Jacket has to fall in line, right? He basically has to succumb to the will of the populace in order to continue his service to the Seneca Nation as one of their as one of their representatives. Yes, even as they are not actually meeting on the battlefields, right? In in that kind of way, they are deliberately avoiding one another mm -hmm. so that they're not actually going to war against their Tuscarora and their Oneida brethren. But there are certainly political fissures. There are certainly factions, even within those nations who ostensibly on paper seem to be allied with one side. Mm -hmm. So yes, this fractures the Confederacy and that makes the, with that moment when Joseph Brandt takes effectively the majority of the Iroquois, almost all of the Mohawk, but the majority of the rest of the Iroquois as well, and moves away, makes a deal, separate independent deal with the Canadian government and with the British government in Canada and moves north of the St. Lawrence River and establishes this, his own vision of an Iroquois empire called the United Indian Nations right up there on the St. Lawrence River and effectively leaves. Like, most of the Seneca, as well as a handful of the other, of other members of the different six nations behind in, in New York. And yes, the, so the American Revolution does have this fracturing element, both politically, as well as, in this case, literally geographically, by physically separating the two branches. So by 1783, 1786, approximately how old is Red Jacket and what's his position within the six, within the Seneca, but also then within the six nations? Sure. So Red Jacket in the 80s, or in the early 80s, 1780s, is around 30 years old. We're not entirely mm -hmm. sure when he was actually born. But by the time of 1783, he had been elevated as a chief 
Contemporary observers are calling these people sachems. Today, the Haudenosaunee refer to their leaders as chiefs, so I've, I use this language in the book. So he is a chief, he is a representative of the Seneca, of the Seneca nation, and by extension, at least for the United States, they are thinking about him as a representative of all the Six Nations. And this is part of where his power lies. He cannot actually speak for all of the Six Nations. He simply does not have the authority to do as just a chief of mm -hmm. Seneca. He can speak abstractly about the mm -hmm. Six Nations overall. He does not have the authority to speak for everyone. But he is a diplomat at this point. He's cut his teeth in war. Some of his detractors, again, we return to Joseph Brandt and Corn Planter. These, I don't want to call them nemeses. That might be a little bit too strong. But his critics during the war accuse him of various counts of cowardice. This is where he gains the name Cow Killer. This nickname. <laughs> because of the story where during the Sullivan-Clinton campaign, which was this literal campaign of genocide launched by sort of General Washington, who sent General Sullivan and Clinton out into Iroquois country with the express purpose of a scorched earth campaign. Dri driving the Iroquois out of there into Fort Niagara, then taking Fort Niagara, basically. Yes, that was the original strategic, that was the strategic concept. Yes. And at that point, it was the largest uh, sort of army of assembled by the Americans during the Re American Revolution at that point. It was to yeah. fight was to fight Indians, not the British. The logistic, um, Nathaniel Green's papers are remarkably full of how to organize that expedition. It's It twisted him into knots. Oh, uh, yes. To give you a sense of the scale of it, yeah. Yeah, remarkable is the right word, uh, absolutely. Yeah. During these battles and series of battles, Red Jacket was, one historian called him a reluctant warrior, and I think that's a pretty fair assessment. So during one of these battles, when he given this name cow killer by his, uh, by his detractors was the Americans were attacking Red Jacket and an ally of his, a Seneca ally of his was on the front line defending against this American advance, but Red Jacket had supposedly slipped away into the hinterland, killed a cow in order to bloody both himself, his compatriot, whoever he was standing next to, as well as his Tomahawk, Tomahawk, as well as his rifle, and then returned to the battle lines after the battle was actually over, claiming that he had killed an American spy and a sort of scout who was sneaking around the side trying to find a flanking position over there. And thus he was given the name Cow Killer and was accused of cowardice multiple times thereafter. But despite all that, he was still elected to, was born into a position where he could have ascended to the ranks of a chief, but also one of the spokesmen for the Seneca as a diplomat and maintained that position, was elected into that position, yes, and then maintained that position for the duration of the American Revolution. So, just briefly, sidebar, how does this work? He's in the right family, he has the right line of matrilineal descent in order to be eligible for election? Is that how it... Yes, yes. So it is matrilineal society, so you are born into the capacity to inherit a leadership position. However, and here again, we return to the power of women in Haudenosaunee society. If you do not perform your duties well, and if you do not adhere to public opinion, and if you otherwise have dereliction of duty, or the nation basically gives you a vote of no confidence, you can be removed from that position. And that can title will then be transferred to somebody else. So you inherit this space, but you have to be chosen to actually 
given a chiefly name. In addition to that, you have to perform your duties well, or else you can be removed. Effectively, removed from by the women of your clan. Yes, with the yes. They are Although the I noticed, by the way, you're speaking. We, I'm gonna. I'll be Mr. Skeptic here. I noticed they do call the Delaware women, and I don't think that means that they th- regard them as full of political power, no, and potency. So there's it's the role of women is more ambiguous, perhaps, among the Haudenosaunee than I would thought. Yes, it's. Right, that there's a line of demarcation between diplomacy and women's internal political power. As this matrilineal society, women are bearers of property. If we wanted to narrow what that means down for the Iroquois into a single word, bearers of property, so all the title is in their name. They're the ones who are the adoptees, right? They are essentially the carriers of kinship networks and naming rights. They have the pool of names that are, that from which are drawn title and individual names for people that once a person passes away, their name is brought back into the pool from which the women pick out another one and give it to give it to different leadership positions. But the political decisions and the diplomatic decisions and all of the chiefs, as well as of the individual national representatives, all 50 plus of them, who are representatives of the six nations at large, every single one of those people are men. Yes, it's this authority and this power to determine political direction and to choose political leadership, as well as that responsibility to be the caretaker of a kinship line. Political decisions are made by men. Yes, with the advice and sometimes consent of women, but those political decisions are made themselves by men. So when the Iroquois are calling the Delaware women, it is this recognition of Yes, you are a part of us, but we are still the decision makers. We are still the ones on top. And of course, the Iroquois are speaking directly to a white American audience who aren't really recognizing women's political participation at all in their society. And the Iroquois are very aware of this. So this is very targeted, strategic language and that they're using and that they're framing this. Red Jacket, we should move to serve the in many ways, the crux of the book is a meeting, an object that's delivered at the meeting. And upon that much, from that much dangles. So could you describe that? Sure. So yes, this is when in the 17, in 1792, this meeting occurs in Philadelphia, in the capital city. And this is a meeting between a coalition of Senecas. Red Jacket is not as the Seneca are assembling this group to go to Philadelphia, to talk to the United States, to carve out a diplomatic path forward, right, for these two nations as the United States is looking west and as they're going to war against other nations who may well be supported by the Iroquois. And there's this general sort of state of fear that that might be the case. So it's of paramount importance to the United States to actually treat with the Iroquois and to talk about what this actually means. Red Jacket is chosen once uh, close to, actually once they arrive within the city to be the primary spokesperson for the Iroquois. And over the course of these deliberations, George Washington famously gives Red Jacket a peace medal. And this peace medal is carries an extraordinary amount of meaning and symbolism. But for the United States, it's really this emblem of 
the U.S.'s new and federal Indian policy, saw what had happened amongst the various colonies and then various states, knew that each one of these states had their own political interests and their own way of dealing with their indigenous neighbors in whatever form that took, whether it be war, whether it be trade, whether it be peace, whatever it was. Washington was convinced that the only way forward for the United States and for the benefit of Indian relations more broadly, in order for the United States to actually achieve its end of westward expansion, was to federalize Indian policy. So no state, therefore, was allowed effectively to deal with Indians on their... Briefly, just to explain, since unfortunately most of us are going to be ignorant about this, listeners are going to be ignorant about this, how does Washington's policy towards Indians, what does he envision the role of Indians within, or what does he envision the relations of Indian tribes with the United States of America? And how is it, my sense is that it's radically different from what happens even 20 years later or 10 years later, and let alone now. But what's what? how would he see the Six Nations fitting in relation to the United States? Notice I'm not saying within the United States. Exactly. Yeah, I, not within the United States is right, is, is a critical part of this. And it's complicated by the fact that indigenous peoples are already in the United States. When they come to the city, the Seneca delegation comes to the city, there's this parade of 10,000 people, Philadelphians, who show up to essentially welcome the Seneca delegation to the city. That does not include traders who are there on a daily basis, people who live in the city, whalers in the Northeast, down to planters and slave owners in the Southeast. Indigenous people are already in these white and American spaces. Mm -hmm. But for Washington, when he's thinking about this kind of geopolitically, he's thinking about the separation. There's no question in Washington's mind that these Indian powers are less than Euro-American powers, for sure. He's convinced that Christianity, he's convinced that European civilization, he's convinced that all of these things are the path forward and into the future. And these barbarians who are essentially at the gates and who are on our borders are not part of this society. That doesn't necessarily negate the possibility that they might be assimilated one day, but for Washington, it's really about ensuring that these Indian powers are neutralized enough mm -hmm. so that the United States can expand as it will. And he certainly does not want them to be a tool in the hand of the British Empire this is, or, any, or the Spanish Empire. This is his and Jefferson's great concern is they don't want North America to be like Europe. And what they mean by that is they don't want the European powers to be able to exert their will upon the United States using natives or colonists. But yeah. Right, exactly. That's certainly part. So he envisions basically, he envisions Indian tribal government as protectorates to get back to Switzerland. They'll be Liechtenstein to Switzerland. They'll be Liechtenstein. They'll be a protectorate to the Federal Republic because right. he also can't see how a, a chiefdom can fit within a republic, which always strikes me as one of Jackson's problems. And certainly as democracy becomes more populist and popular, increasingly it's really hard to figure out where to put Indians within a popular democracy. Right. It doesn't seem to be an accident that the deportations and the removals occur at the time of basic when nearly every state is one white man, one vote. Yes. And <clears throat> there's that 
Yes, and that complex interaction of what is a domestic dependent nation once John exactly, Marshall yeah. and the Supreme Court declares, what does that actually mean? In, in Sure, in black and white and on paper, it it's, could be one thing, but of course, Jackson ends up ignoring that and allows the state governments, and particularly Georgia, to act as it will, thus simply annihilating all of Washington's efforts to federalize right. the sort of Indian policy. But yes, yeah, so it's creating these alliances, it's creating these neutralities, it's creating trying to create as much border stability, rather Washington's aim, is try to create as much border stability as possible. There is deep fear and there's living evidence, right? In the 1790s, we are well within the living memory of the American Revolution, but also in the 1780s on the border of Pennsylvania, as well as the Carolinas, border violence, these yeah. Indian wars and these Indian... The Indians. Whiskey Rebellion is as much driven by... Yeah continual raids and killings of whites along the Pennsylvania, Ohio border as it is on the excise tax. So I it's, mean, I, yeah, it's this general fear, right? And this general state of instability that Washington is trying to- The last thing he needs is the Seneca, the Six Nations, as you say in the book, taking a side in what 1792 is the Battle of the Wabash, St. Clair's defeat, the most catastrophic per capita defeat in the history of the United States Army. The last thing he needs is Red Jacket and others to say, oh, let's get involved somehow. Let's get some benefit from this somehow. Exactly. So this medal, we should briefly describe it. It's huge, right? It looks like the size of a small plate, essentially. It is, yes. The pictures you'll find, if you just honestly search on the internet, if you just Google Red we'll Jacket. Put it, it'll, probably be, it'll probably be the title picture for this episode. Oh, or at least fair? it'll be in the show notes, that's right. for sure. Very appropriate. Yeah. If you just Google this thing, it seems comically large. And in some ways it is. It's about seven inches tall and about five inches wide. Yeah. And it weighs a couple pounds. And it's made entirely out of silver. This thing is monumental nice. and it's absolutely huge. It was designed to be worn around the neck. You thread a ribbon or you thread a leather thong or something. <laughs> Oops, sorry. I did not mute that quickly enough. Uh, okay. It was designed to be worn around the neck, right? Threaded through with a ribbon or a leather thong or something. So it is designed to be front. It's designed to be center. And it's got images on it designed by Washington's administration and the Federalists to convey this idea of peace. Because right, right on the front of it is a stylized figure of an Indian person they have a feather headdress. They basically just have kind of this kilt, almost this loincloth style clothing underneath, standing next to a tree. But in front of him, he's clearly speaking to George Washington. This yeah, they, I love that. They've taken the brand spanking new portrait of Washington by John Trumbull, the silversmith has, and then basically the figure of Washington's figure is recognizably from the Trumbull full-length portrait. The way his knees are cocked and everything. And they just transferred him to silver. So yes. that's, that, there you have it. Yes. It's this remarkable imagery because for a lot of things, I, Washington, when the Washington administration decided to create this medal, they replaced the image of Columbia as the representative of these European imperial powers, right? So Washington begins to replace that. And like in every other facet of federal policy at this point, the administration is deeply invested in tying America's 
future tying the stability of the federal government to the person of Washington himself, right? This new republicanized monarch. They are deeply invested in putting his face on money and putting his face, his name everywhere they can find. These negotiations over Washington, D.C. Washington, the name of Washington, D.C. is not an accident. They're tying it to the figure of George Washington. And this extends to federal Indian policy as well. So on this face, Washington is meeting the stylized Indian figure and this Indian figure, you have to look pretty closely because it's actually fairly crudely drawn. You have to look pretty closely, but this Indian figure has dropped the hatchet, right? This eternal symbol of war. If the hatchet is buried, there is no war. If you've planted the hatchet like in a tree or the hatchet is out in the open, is still born by the carrier, then that is a symbol of war rather than peace, which when, you know, when it's buried. <clears throat> so underneath that is, underneath these two figures, they're on a pastoral scene. They're standing by a tree. Yes, but in the background, you'll see a farm. You'll see an ox. You'll see a little farm house. Again, it's evoking this civilizing mission of the United States and that it's not only a diplomatic necessity to bring the Indians on the border to heal, it is also a cultural, moral, sort of civilizational imperative to teach the Indians how to live as Europeans and Americans do. Bring them into our way of thinking and being. And then underneath that is George Washington's name and the year 1792, the date that this, that this medal was issued. And yeah, it's a fascinating, literally, in some cases, larger than life object. Yeah. And for Red Jacket, for his successors, this becomes, dare I say, totemic, even mm -hmm. perhaps it's sacral object, because it has with, bound within it many meanings, which, can, which flow from it, but also as it were into it from people who behold it. There's something powerful, the idea that Eli Parker will be wearing it during, not perhaps at the Appomattox Surrender Ceremony, but that he has worn it at various occasions during the Civil War. That's a very, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a priest in the Old Testament wearing an ephod, because it's about that size. It's like that sort of thing on the chest with jewels, which is a sign of the riches of, that, that signifies who a Jew is and who the Jews are. In a way, this is now expressing, born on the chest, who the Six Nations are now and their relation to the United States. Yeah, Ely's, right, it's, and we pronounce his name, lots of historians have pronounced his name Ely, Parker, right. but yeah. Uh, yeah, he pronounced it Ely. He was named after a Protestant Baptist minister and one of his descendants who was actually a first-person interpreter of his, I think the relation is great-great-grand-uncle? <laughs> Great-grandfather, some distant familial re relation based on generations in that distance, is also reinforcing this pronunciation of mm -hmm. Ely. But yes, he's keenly aware of what this medal means, even as it cast forward in time, because part of Red Jacket's whole diplomatic effort was to use the power and the imagery of this medal to achieve his own ends. Mm -hmm. He knows, as well as the Washington administration does, how powerful George Washington's image actually is. And he, from the very beginning of the American Revolution until the day he dies, is 
also an advocate, staunch advocate, and is constantly pursuing this narrative of peace. So contemporaries, Corn Planter is making side deals with the American government to form an independent reservation, which today is the Corn Planter Reservation, as Joseph Brandt is making entirely separate deals with the British government to literally remove huge numbers of Iroquois people from New York into Canada to establish their own empire up there. Red Jacket is himself pursuing consistently and eternally this narrative of peace. So this peace medal really embodies the Washington administration's desire to bring Red Jacket on board, as well as Red Jacket's own desire to say, you, the federal government, have promised us certain things. Mm -hmm. You recognize our power. You recognize our imperial authority. We wouldn't be meeting in Philadelphia if this were not the case, if you didn't recognize the threat that we posed. And it's constantly making these big public efforts to sell that message. There's always that thing where early British colonists and then early Americans are always seeing, as Jefferson sees Logan, as a sort of the, the highest peak of eloquence. And it's not always clear why. What Jefferson describes of Logan is it's very simple. It's not a few sentences. It's no big deal. But when you describe Red Jacket, I see what's going on here because there's several times in the margins I've wrote Ciceronian in that yes. Red Jacket is a full-on, I almost would say genius rhetorician in which words and appearance, what he dresses in, the metal, of course, his appearance, how he speaks, and Ely Parker, likewise, the way that they present themselves as well as what they say is extraordinarily important to their to their thrust of their message. They are like a like a communication studies model of how to win friends and influence people. Yes, they really are. And Red Jacket was and Ely Parker, of course, were extremely good at this. And as you mentioned, their image was very carefully honed, right? When they appeared in public and when they delivered these speeches and none of this was accidental. Red Jacket wore his peace medal in open and in public any time that he gave a public speech. Every single image that we have of him, whether taken directly by a portrait artist, he worked with this artist in the 1820s named Robert Weir, Weir who painted the definitive portrait of Red Jacket. And Red Jacket was very careful to shape not only the background imagery, he wanted his portrait to be rooted in Iroquois country. He wanted portrait to be rooted in the Great Falls on the Hudson River, which is where the Iroquois Confederacy was founded, again, evoking this imperial imagery. But while he was being painted by Robert Weir, there's this wonderful little anecdote. He was being painted by Robert Weir, was standing in the studio, had his interpreter next to him because when he was in public speaking to American audiences, he never spoke a word of English. He was fluent, but he never spoke a word of English, which was the point, right? Again, it's this Iroquois representative showing this power and he's constantly defying this colonial influence and this effort and this movement, even as the realities of colonial, the harsh, brutal realities of colonialism were happening behind him. And yet for Ely Parker as well, when he gives speeches, he gives it in Seneca. Even if the audience is like, even if the audience is like half white or even all white. But what's, what I love about, this is an auditory culture. This is where everyone's, people are going to church and they listen to political speeches all mm -hmm. the time, unlike us. 
we don't have appreciation for the auditory. But there's something about the way they presented, even when you don't understand Seneca, you can say, boy, that guy is a great speaker. Yes. Which is, again, that's very, that's that takes us back to Homer. It's a way in which the 1840s are closer to Homer than they are to us. Right, that right. Appreciation yeah, of a... the spoken word. And, and they're obviously both, Red Jacket and his nephew, have that capacity to make themselves felt, even if not understood. Yes. And American audiences were obsessed with this. They eat that up. Truly obsessed, obsessed with, with They with love this. it. Yeah. There's this right phenomenon of the eloquent Indian in the 1820s and the 1830s. And uh, this right here we seek really the origins of the, of the noble savage and of the That's Dolan. Rousseau, but yeah, but that's a, it's that a certain, I think of the ads about don't litter in the seventies. I'm so old, which was done by an Italian American actor, I believe who had a single tear. Right. This that was Bill Ironize Cody moment. Yeah. yeah exactly. And he's kind of, what is it? He's watching the car go by and he's seeing Sound all the trash on the But screen. this is, the, there's a link between him and the way that people are appreciating. Right. This. But I think they have a much deeper appreciation for spoken eloquence than we do just because they listen a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. It, and you're right. Even if they couldn't understand the words, right? There was this appreciation for this sort of declining people and what they had to say about their own fate. Mm. And as right. like moral Americans are really appreciative of the fact that these indigenous people seem to represent and evoke the moral failings of American society in a way that maybe mm -hmm. white writers are not thinking about it in the same way. So they appreciate that. But you're right, this physical performative effect, Red Jacket in some of these speeches, he was filling out auditoriums all up and down the East Coast. And sometimes he didn't have an interpreter. So he would speak for a full 45 minutes, an hour, and didn't have an interpreter. And everyone was riveted. Even newspapers who are responding to these things are literally saying, we don't really know what he said. Oh my <laughs> God, what a brilliant speaker. It was remarkable. Yeah. And it was part of his power, right? It was part of that authority. It was part of this message that he was able to transmit to Americans, even if they literally couldn't understand what he was saying. So we don't have time to get into Ely Parker's entire career, which is mm. as varied as Red Jacket's, but we should touch on what I began with, the reason why he's in the Appomattox drawing room parlor of Wilmer McLean, mm. along with Ulysses S. Grant. So he's an engineer. He's been on engineering projects in Galena, Illinois. He meets this assistant clerk who's just fled from poverty in St. Louis to working for his father in Galena. They're friendly, and he and Rawl John Rawlins, eventually local Galena guys who get on to become part of Grant's staff. Yes. What I thought was fascinating was that Parker's offer to volunteer to the state of New York as a New York volunteer and bring a regiment of Iroquois had been turned down because he's not a citizen. And that leads to the paradox that I alluded to in the, the beginning and the opening, the introduction. A non-citizen of the United States writes the surrender terms, the final draft of the terms of surrender yeah. for Grant Lee to sign. Yeah. It is a remarkable moment and it is a remarkable person. All, all of these yeah. people are remarkable they in are. their own ways. And it is amazing. He really struggles with the citizenship question. He thinks, yeah. Ely Parker himself thinks citizenship is desirable and is in some cases inevitable. What he tried to do was what previous generations of Seneca men and Iroquois men more broadly had always tried to do, which was 
to gain an independent commission with the New York State governor in order to effectively fight for the United States, doing this throughout the War of 1812, for example. He was denied this because now in this sort of new federal thing, yes, he was not a citizen, so he was denied, so he had to find another way through, and he had a friend in Washington, D.C., and he found a way to, found a way to do that and eventually landed in this moment. And that anecdote where Robert E. Lee, at the end of this meeting in, in the Appomattox courthouse, turns to first at their initial meeting, Robert E. Lee walks in, he shakes everybody's hand, and eventually he gets to E. Lee Parker, who's standing there. And before he shakes his hand, he hesitates. The idea is that Lee perhaps thinks that one of Ulysses S. Grant's entourage is black. And commentators at the time were thinking this would have been grounds for Lee to just walk out the door. This would have ended the negotiations in the moment if Grant had committed this cardinal sin of bringing a black person into the room over this war of slavery with Robert E. Lee. But he gets over whatever he was thinking in that moment. We don't are not entirely sure. He gets over whatever he was thinking. And then at the end of these proceedings, Ely Parker is writing the missive to President Lincoln about, yes, the war's over, the Army of Northern Virginia has surrendered, and he's cataloging what's happening during the meetings. He's, Ely Parker's basically taking the minutes throughout this mm -hmm. entire thing. He drafts the terms of surrender. He does all of these things, like really important things. And at the end, Robert E. Lee basically turns to him as he's leaving and says, at least there's one real American in the room. And then the story goes, at least for Ely Parker, Ely returns with, we are all Americans. And then this vignette kind of ends. And so interesting, yes, that he says this, despite the fact that he's not being a citizen, or the idea is that he said this while not being a citizen. But once again, that story, this presentation of Ely Parker was invented by his nephew, Arthur Parker. And so we don't actually see any evidence of this, and there is no record of this before 1919, when Arthur Parker wrote a biography of his uncle. Arthur Parker is infusing Indianness. He's infusing Iroquoianness. He's infusing patriotism, despite the fact that Ely is a non-citizen, right? He's infusing all of these things into this moment retroactively, right? This formative moment in the future in the United States, the history of the United States. He's doing all of this retroactively. But yes, this Appomattox Courthouse is fascinating and Ely's participation in it is as well. Let's briefly get to, before I get to our, finish off on the last year, let's briefly get to Harriet Converse. People will notice her, the last name is not Parker. But as we've alluded to, for the Iroquois, adoption is extremely important. And she was an adoptive member of not the Wolf Clan, but was adopted by the women of the Parker family. Is that right? Into the, into a clan that's part of the Seneca. So right. she was, so she, it's as, doesn't matter who she was born to. She was adopted in, and she's as much a member of the Seneca as anyone else. Yes. She is adopted into the Snipe clan, which is Snipe not clan. part of the Parker's Wolf clan sort of family lineage, but she was sponsored by Caroline Parker, who was Ely Parker's sister. Yes, for these adoptions to commence, you have to have leadership buy-in. You have to formally be adopted, and there is a ceremony, and you are given a name. And ethnographers look at this and... There's two ways to think about it. One is this very cynical way where these, let me rephrase that. There's two ways to look at this. One of them is strategic in that when these native nations are adopting 
white outsiders. It is for purpose. They are useful. They're political players. They can raise money, right? Whatever the purpose is. But then the flip side of that is that when these adoptions occur, there must be a serious and important and personal relationship to the person who is adopted. These things don't come out of nowhere. And these things don't just happen. We have ample evidence of ceremonies where people are given names in public ceremonies and they're just public officials or the people who otherwise have no connection to Indian country and they're adopted. That is very different than what happened to Converse. Okay. And mm-hmm. what does what difference does that make to her life? She comes to she starts her year, she starts her Seneca life late in life. She's over 50 years old by the time she's actually adopted into the Seneca nations. Before that, she was an established poet and was an author and was fairly wealthy in, in her own right. So for Converse, this transforms her into not only somebody who is a salvage ethnographer, right? Somebody who makes their living buying, selling, in some cases, robbing indigenous nations of their material culture and of their stuff for sale, in a lot of cases to the highest bidder, as well as for academic study, but also as a chosen representative of the Iroquois to Washington, D.C., as well as to the state government. The Iroquois recognize her potential. They recognize her literary capacity. They recognize her political talent and bring her on board and thus mobilize her to defend Iroquoian territorial sovereignty. So this adoption and this elevation in name only in some cases to these higher political roles is really significant in the way that she's able to represent in Iroquois country, as well as her ability to expand her salvage career. So I I call her colonial kin. So all of that is wrapped up in this notion that she becomes colonial kin, defending Iroquoian sovereignty while also at the exact same time removing all of their material culture from Iroquoian possession and selling it to the highest bidder. She's complicated and she's a contentious, very contentious figure. Definitely a participant in cultural genocide, for sure. And how, what's the reaction of the Iroquois to her buying and selling to the highest bidder? Is this okay because she's part of the tribe or what's the, what's going on here? No, really. I, it, it is complicated. In some cases, you know, there's this famous moment where she sells all of the Iroquois political history wrapped up in these wampum belts, sells. I couldn't believe that. I could yeah. not believe that would be allowed. Yeah. It's not entirely clear why. I actually haven't found a straight answer to how exactly this happened because there are a few ways it could have gone down. She's salvages an ethnographer, very persuasive, has a lot of resources at her disposal. So it is conceivable that when this happened in the 1890s and all of this was sold to New York State, who became the caretakers of the Iroquois' literal, physical, political legacy, when she did this, it is possible that the Iroquois did not have the facilities to actually take care of these objects themselves. Because when the last keeper of the Iroquoian keeper of the wampum belts died, it turns out some of the wampum belts that he claimed were still in existence had long ago vanished and nobody knew where they were. So was that reason enough? It's not entirely clear. Was the transfer of these belts more complicated than that? Sure. 
we also know that Converse was, yes, very persuasive, but was also certainly not shy about taking advantage of people's economic circumstances to, to extract material culture from people. She was dealing with salvage ethnographers from across the world who specialized in preying, in some cases, on poor Iroquoian people who otherwise had very little economic prospects, and the only thing they had to sell was their material culture and effectively their labor, extracting those things and then putting them on the shelves of museums. So was it a case of that? Were the Iroquois, in fact, able to take care of these things themselves? But she just had this ability to convince people that this was the right course of action. I'm not entirely sure, and it could very plausibly go in, in either direction. We have to finish up here and, and touch briefly on Arthur Parker. I realized as I was prepping for this, the name was familiar, and I realized that several of the important books in my childhood about the Indian Howl book was written by Arthur C. Parker. Look at Dover Publications. They re reprint many of his things. The Tales of the Iroquois, Arthur C. Parker. Yeah. So Arthur C. Parker is this conduit stories of what a mohawk actually was at the haircut, what a how, how to build a longhouse, all of these things, and also these legends, these creation tales, right. the tales of Hiawatha and it's Tadohoa, and these all these marvelous stories from the sort of prehistory of the yeah. Iroquois, even before the wampum, back before the wampum belts were made the existing ones. And so who was he and how does he fit into this remarkable family? Yeah. I could talk about Arthur Parker all day. He, he's one of these people, he's one of these people where Joe Lepore had this really great anecdote that when you're writing biographies, sometimes you love your biographical subjects too much. I certainly fell into that with Arthur Parker. I think he's an absolutely fascinating figure. He's a public historian. He's an anthropologist and an archeologist, and he lived in this moment and transformed the public history of New York State to not only local, which was pioneering in its own right, to focus on local history rather than national things, but to make those stories distinctly and decidedly Iroquoian, using the stories of his own people to tell the history of New York State. In many ways, building. this fits. He is the, in many ways, we could play the book backwards, starting with him. Yes. Since he, because. He's, he's not creating, but he's certainly, he's the one that find, he finds the silver thread that goes back through Red Jacket. He does. And back, and then he says, this is what's important. He does. And taking and choosing and sometimes cherry picking these stories in order to create this narrative of Iroquois exceptionalism, in order to prove that the Iroquois are not only fundamental to New York history, but are New York's history. And this is a sea change for how museum professionals, as well as how the public are interacting with Iroquoian life. It's, he, in a lot of ways, is the reason why the Iroquois are, in a sense, a household name. Right? In trivia right. games I've played, the Iroquois are there. Why? Parker's influence in his capacity to reach back into those generations and create a narrative that would have made sense to the broader. And it's, but it's no more crazy than me, Zambone, probably descended from Lombard barbarians that descended through the Alps to destroy Italy, <laughs> to, see, to say that as Italian-American, I have to know about the Romans. It, that's insane. That's a product of Italian nationalism, of 19th century things. But so it's not, it's not crazy then for Arthur Parker to say, if you're a New Yorker, if you're a 
third generation Jewish New Yorker, you should know about the Iroquois. They're your ancestors. Right. They're the Romans for New York. Right. Yes. And even in the 1830s, they're having these kinds of conversations. So he's certainly not alone yeah. in this. DeWitt in this Clinton. Effort. We didn't even get to DeWitt Clinton right. and his really very interesting sort of history of New York. But the Empire State exists because the Iroquois are the third pillar of the Empire State. Right. One is economic. And as we talked about, the Erie Canal. The second one is population overtaking the Old Dominion. Therefore, New York becomes the most populated and by extension, the most important state in the Union. Mm -hmm. And the third one is they could not have existed without influence and the history and the table that the Iroquoian Empire had laid. That's how he's conceiving of this. That's how New Yorkers are conceiving of this. And that's why we're at the Empire State. That's why it's called. That's our sort of cultural conception of the Empire State cannot exist without the Iroquois, thanks to Red Jacket's influence and finally Arthur Parker's reinforcement, endless reinforcement of that narrative and of that idea. Mm -hmm. Let's just conclude with what happened to the peace medal. <laughs> How did it get from Eli Parker, who died in New York City, how did it get to a New York State Museum in Buffalo? So it was actually Ely Parker's wife who sold the medal. Oh, okay. She had a widow's pension, but it was not enough to sustain her effectively. She effectively sold Ely Parker's estate, all of his personal belongings, right? He fancied himself the archivist of Ulysses S. Grant and the Civil War. So all of the Civil War memorabilia and artifacts and whatever were sold by his wife to private collectors and museums and things like this. Part of that was also the sale of the Peace Medal itself. Mm. It actually wasn't hers to sell. And part of the repatriation effort of the Seneca Nation in the 2000s was that mm. she had no right to sell this. It is property of the nation. It is property of leadership. Yeah. She had absolutely no right to sell this thing. Therefore, that is our legal claim to repatriate this item to where it sits today at the Seneca Iroquois National Museum. But she sold it to the Buffalo Historical Society. And now, and the Buffalo History Museum owned it from 1890s, from the mid 1890s all the way through 2019, 20, I think is. 19, or, yeah, maybe 2020. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the exact yeah, date. I can't, no, I don't have the notes in front of me right, right. now. So, so like the that. turn of these decades. So they, they owned it for that length of time after he had passed away. So it, it sat gathering dust on the shelf in, in a Buffalo historical society for all of that time until it was repatriated recently. And there was a couple of moments where it was lost and then it was found again and then it was returned, but that's perhaps another tale for a different day. What do you want people to take away from the book? What's the single most important thing that you wish they would take away from the book? I suppose that's an audience kind of based question. For... The broader public, I hope this book is accessible. I tried to write it as accessibly as I could. If this lands in a classroom, I would be, I'd be ecstatic. If it lands in museum bookshops, I'd be ecstatic. That's, I am a public historian and I want to reach the public and I want to communicate with the public. And that's of vital importance to me as a scholar and as a person. So for the public, I really want them to see, of course, this influence of indigenous people on American history, not just in cultural forms, not just in imagery, and not just in road names in things, but that indigenous people actually had genuine, true agency in the shaping of some of these narratives. It's not the dominant narrative, but aspects of what we know and what has been handed down, shaped by indigenous peoples themselves, as I relate in this book. For scholars, for historians, we've really got, we've got blinders on. 
Indian history east of the Mississippi River seems to end after the 1830s. And very few people are thinking about this, except for anthropologists who are doing wonderful work about present day as well as 20th century indigenous and late 19th century indigenous history. But for historians, we seem to be stuck in this rut where we can't really get out of the 1830s east of the Mississippi River because, well, Indian removal happens and therefore there's that. The locus of Indian history and power and whatever all moves to Oklahoma and beyond that, oh, this is not about the 18th century. This isn't about the 1830s. In fact, that's the beginning of this story. Mm-hmm. And it goes a hundred plus years into the future. So I really want to move that timeline for historians from stopping in the 1830s to there's so much more that is of value, that is of import, that shows contingency and change over and all of these questions that historians ask that occur well into the 19th and 20th centuries. My guest today has been John C. Winters. He's the author of The Amazing Iroquois and the Invention of the Empire State. John, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al, very much. This was a pleasure to talk to you. And it was really a wonderful experience. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 